So verse 30, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. It's an interesting sentence there. But it reminds us that something's going on here that Jesus wanted to just separate. A lot of times in scripture, he separates for himself. At this point, he's separating with his disciples. I think it's really important that he is, he knows what he's doing. He's Jesus. He's building this foundation with these, with these guys that he's just going to make sure that they fully understand what's going on. Verse 31, it even says, this is why. Because he was teaching his disciples. Make no qualm about it. This is what he was doing. He wasn't just speaking over their shoulder to the mass of thousands of people on the hillside. He was speaking to his disciples, those who claimed to know him, but didn't quite yet know how to live like he lived. Didn't quite yet know how to um, experience or to receive this power, to be empowered, to do the things that we're supposed to do and we don't know how to do. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So he's telling them again, just a couple, just a couple days ago, he told them that he was going to die. And he tells them again, he's going to die. But they did not understand what he meant. And were afraid to ask him about it. Verse 33, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? If you look in the other gospels, they have a longer account of as they were approaching this town, the disciples were talking amongst themselves and they were arguing amongst themselves. Do you remember what they were arguing about? They were arguing which of us were going to be the first in the kingdom. Who was going to be at Jesus' right hand? Because Jesus had talked about the kingdom was coming. Right? And so they were like, oh, cool. Am I going to be a duke or a prince? Or who's, who's the man here? Who's going to be the... You know, who, you know, what's going on? So they were arguing about this on the way. And so Jesus asked them, but he, we're going to hear later, he, he knew what they were arguing about. And he asked them, caught them on it. What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. And we're going we're gonna to talk about three kind of mega themes today through the scripture. The first two are caught in the scripture that we just read. All right. Um, the first one is, if you flip your outline in the back, there's, there's three points and then a couple points in each. These are the, the, the first two themes that we're going to look at. Okay, because I think something is happening in this scripture. One that Mark is doing, maybe Peter told him, you need to write this. Maybe Mark, I don't know how that all worked, but, but Mark wrote down this, this thing where he was revealing our motives. So that first part right there, Mark is revealing our motives. He's revealing, maybe you could say our heart. He's revealing our bent. He's revealing how we most intuitively do things as human beings in a fallen world. It's just reality. He's, he's just showing us reality. He's holding a mirror up to our faces is what he's doing. To them and to us. It's an opportunity for us, okay? And the second one is there, a couple blanks down. The second is that scripture presents this as a problem. The problem is going to be exposed, Okay? So in this whole experience, this journey, this teaching, Jesus knows what he's doing. Uh, he's doing two major things. One, he's predicting his death a second time. Okay, he already did that. We mentioned that. But it's really important for us to realize every time Jesus talks about his death, do so you notice something else he does? What does he do? Does he always go, oh, guys, guess what? I'm going to die. Wah, wah, wah. What does he do? Huh? He says, in three days, I'm, I'm going to rise. When he teaches about, when he talks about the coming crucifixion, his death, he always talks about it in context of the resurrection. 
It's funny, when I try to follow Jesus, I always think about all the stuff I got to die to myself. I got to die to myself. All this stuff, and I forget to think about this true gospel that says, but there's a renewal coming. And that there's healing coming and there's hope coming. It's so interesting that we always want to go to the negative and what we got to give up instead of the positive in what we're receiving. That in itself, talk to any psychologist, that will mess you up. That will derail anyone. He always comes with the hope of the resurrection when he talks about his death. And the second thing is he was making disciples. He was very intentional about doing this. He was getting very serious. He had given them time to just chew on it. He had pulled them aside where no one else was with them, so they were alone. He was preparing them for this approaching trial that was going to happen in his life, in their lives, where it was going to get tough to be a Christian. It was going to be hard. And Jesus went on later on and said, hey, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. So Mark reveals our motives. Maybe you might even write in there, he reveals our true motives. Verse 32 is an interesting thing to me. They will kill him, in, or verse 31, they will kill him and after three days he will rise, but they did not understand what he meant. Um, doesn't that seem obvious what he means to anyone else? Seriously, does that not seem obvious? To me, it seems like they're going to kill him and that he's going to come back to life in three days. Seems fairly out of the box, okay? But here's a guy who's done miracle after miracle after miracle, and they, they could not see this. It seemed, um, it seemed pretty obvious what was going on. Why do you think they missed this? Because that's exactly what he meant, by the way. You don't have to translate that into the original Greek. That's what it, that's what it meant. He was going to die. They were going to kill him. He was going to raise the life. Why did they miss this? Let's, let's, pardon me? Right, understand why, who, what? So you think they were looking for a metaphor instead of possibly? I never do that. Do you, when you study scripture, do you look for the metaphor instead of the actual truth? I've heard of people who do that and they struggle in their faith a lot. What else? Why, Why would they miss this? How could they miss this such obvious thing he said multiple times? How do they miss it? Why else? Maybe they didn't want him to die. And so what do we know about scripture that says that that's probably true? They didn't want him to die because why? Huh? Yeah, because he, they wanted a kingdom that was just going to kick butt and take names, right? They didn't want to submit to the Romans kingdom. This backwards, weird, first will be last thing, right? Maybe. I want to say that. I want, as a disciple myself, as I try to be a disciple, I want to say that's what I, that the reason I would have ignored it. I'm not so, I, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they did. What else? What other reasons might, maybe might they have missed it? You, maybe they still doubted him a little. Maybe so. So, okay. So maybe they were in denial or just missed it because they were focused on the wrong thing. What else? All right. Scripture says they were afraid, right? It just says, I mean, they did this because they were afraid. What does it say? They did not understand what he meant because they were afraid to ask. Well, why would they be afraid to ask? Selfishness? No. Come on. (laughs) Right? Um, Yeah. They didn't want him to leave. So what are all these things? They matter even in the purest sense unless what? 
Unless he's really God's son and there's a better plan, right? All of those things start filtering away then. But I think it's a good question. And I'm not sure we know 100% why. I think scripture says clearly they were afraid. I wrote down maybe they were afraid of the truth. Um, Why would they be afraid of the truth? Well, maybe because they didn't want him to go. Maybe because they wanted him to establish a kingdom like they wanted. Um, maybe they really liked the dude and was, was just scared that he was gonna, they were going to be left alone and people were going to come to him and want him to cast out demons. They couldn't do it anymore. Maybe they didn't understand. Is it possible they were just afraid of change? They finally found something they liked and so they were going to hold on to it? Again, I'm glad we don't do that. Maybe they were afraid of, the, of if this was going to happen, they'd be left with all the religious people. And what was going to happen to them then? Maybe they were afraid that w- they would be outcasts and not accepted any longer. Because they, they were, but at least now they had Jesus who's doing really awesome things. And the crowd liked him. What about when he's gone and they, they kill him? I think there's a lot of fear there. I think... I think Quite possibly, they were afraid to hear the answer, whatever it was. It it says very clearly, they were afraid to ask. Why? Why are you afraid to ask a question? Because you're afraid to hear the answer. For whatever reason, they don't want to hear the answer. Is it quite possible they didn't want to know? Maybe they had all kinds of ideas of what they thought was going on, but they would just rather not know. Because everything as it is, is going okay. I'm okay with what's going on now. Don't jack it up, Jesus. I can't tell you how many people I, I've run into and I've felt the same way. If I commit to following Jesus this much, my life is no longer going to be fun. So that stinks. That's just not biblical Christianity. But that's, I, I read a, 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 an article on, on this scripture once that said that um, quite possibly they were ashamed to inquire. That they were ashamed um, to ask him what it was about because maybe they didn't get it. You, you know, it, it's interesting how among the religi- re- religiosity we get, um, there are people who would never come to church or never come to a small group or a Bible study because they're so afraid someone's going to make them read a scripture out loud and, or that they don't know where to find something or they don't know a truth that maybe everyone would assume you would know. I know people that have gone years and years and years and years and never been baptized because they were afraid. Everyone else thought they already were. And they were ashamed they had never made that step. That's just false condemnation. But one, one writer suggested maybe they were ashamed and they couldn't acquire. So first point there is we have, we have a real pattern of missing the obvious. And I don't know if that's on purpose, if it's subconsciously or whatever, but in our humanity, we do that a lot. Okay. On our journey, as we began to think about rethinking church five years ago that started A&C, and we began to think about what it meant to serve the poor and to try and really to do this thing, serve the least, and like be a blessing to people. Didn't really know what that looked like. So what I started with is just going back from the beginning of the Bible from Genesis all the way through and began to study it, asking one question. God, what do you want us to do with the least? What do you want us to do with the poor and the broken and the marginalized and the oppressed and the abandoned, and those with less than us. What is our responsibility as believers for those who have less than us, emotionally, physically, spiritually? What is our responsibility? I ran, I read through the entire scripture, studying it just for that question. And what happened to us is I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I was ashamed that 
I felt like I was reading a different Bible. Like my whole life, my religion and the way I wanted to do church and live community was based on something that wasn't biblical. And that I had missed that this was not a metaphor, but it is something Jesus was very clearly doing for a very, for an, in, on purpose. Um, so I get it. I get it that we might be ashamed uh, to inquire. But here's what I'm learning more and more. And I've said this before. And this is, we simply can't learn what we think we already know. And I think in the church is if we would step back and go, maybe I don't know this. Maybe I don't know what Jesus really expects of me in regards to this or that. Maybe if we came from that approach and be willing to say, what do you mean? Maybe we'd really grow. Maybe, maybe our faith would, something would unlock or something would happen. That has been something we've been seeking a long time. So revealing our motives. First one, we have a pattern of missing the obvious. Second one is that we have a propensity to strive for the top. You know what I'm saying, right? In everything. Everything. I, I, I grew up very competitive. I mean, if there was something going on, I wanted to be first no matter what. I mean, I would, I used to run in track every time, whether I was practicing or, or at a meet, I, I, would run, I would throw up after every, because I had nothing left. It was just, sorry, that was a little gross, but true story. I just, I could not lose. I would not, I would, I would always wanted to be first. And this is what they were arguing about. Jesus asked, what were you arguing about? And they kept quiet because they knew. They were arguing about who was going to be first. We tend to elevate ourselves, true or false. Right? Isn't that interesting? And sometimes we do it for a motive that seems pure, and sometimes it's completely out of insecurity. Most of the time it's completely out of insecurity. And, and how we value ourselves and how we expect other people to see us and how we hope others to see us. Do we understand that that brokenness is why um, we try and elevate ourselves on our own instead of trusting in God? Because we want him to see us differently than we see ourselves. Problem is he sees us exactly where we are. Good thing is that problem is also the solution. That's why when scripture talks about confessing, do you know the word confess means to say the same thing as? So when we're confessing scripture in the Bible, that is not just saying we're telling God about a sin he doesn't know about. He's like, really? When did you do that? You know? It's us just going, God, that was, that was bad. That was bad. That was wrong. And he goes, okay, I see it now, God. That's confession. All right? Why do we do this? Why do we elevate ourselves? Well, what ways do we do that? Let's, let's go that way instead. What ways do you try and elevate yourself? Not, don't just think Christianity or religion. What ways do you elevate yourself or try to be first? In a group, emotionally or relationally maybe? Yeah. Talk over people, one-up everyone. Make everything about us. It's amazing. We can hear the, the, the most interesting story and we've got a better one. What other ways do we do it? Huh? Materialistically, many times we feel that pressure to have, to have. Most of the time it's not because we really want it. We want other people to think, we, I can get this. Look at what I've accomplished. Someone said work. I agree. I think in success, we strive and strive. Sometimes, I mean, I can't tell you how many people have laid their families on the life of success professionally over and over and over. By the end, you got nothing except for lost opportunities with your kids and your families. How does that ultimately hurt us? 
How does our desire to be first ultimately hurt us? Not just spiritually, again. How does it hurt you even professionally or relationally? Don't get spiritual on me yet. We're going there. Talk about just relationally. So you end up, you don't have any friends, right? What about work? CEO, after, there's book, leadership book after leadership book after leadership book taught on how to lead a big company and grow. And there's a model of CEO leadership that lasts for a season and then it collapses. And then it lasts for a new one comes out and it lasts for a season, it collapses. And you look over the history of successful business people and the one model that, that seems to endure, it's kind of like the tor- tortoise in the hare, you know, it's the, it's, the, it's the guy that just keeps chugging along is the one where the CEO actually thinks about the people uh, and the company above their own personal success. Um, it ultimately hurts us because ultimately it, it's temporary success because ultimately it ruins relationships and you ultimately end up not getting what you were hoping to get. And this is tricky because we want to do this some because of the culture of success. Maybe we grew up in, or we're still trying to please our dad or whatever it is. I've heard of those people too. It's me. Or maybe just our own insecurity. There can be good and bad motives to do well. Sometimes it's just simply survival, right? I think you're going to sink if you can't. This presents just a really huge problem spiritually, as you were talking about as disciples. Let there be no mistake. Jesus in the scriptures rebuking them for their conversation. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and he said, just on it. Hey, what were you guys talking about? They're like, "Eh, nothing. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the third of all. That was his answer to their He knew what they were talking about. This was his response. Verse 36. So he took a little child whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. I think there's something here for the church. Not just you or me individually. There's something here for the church as well. Us collectively as the church. The first one is we should expect to be called out one day as the church. By what we prioritize by what we fight about, by what we argue about, we will give account for our discourse and our argument. We will. There'll be a day where we stand before God and Jesus is going to go, you spent how many months fighting about what? Why didn't you just love people more? Especially disputing superiority. I think this is a great lesson for us as a church. Did I give you, what did I give you? Okay, so the problem. Here's, here's the problem with these things. I think in discipleship, as well as just this, the first one, it reveals a distorted view of the kingdom. Because they were fighting for a kingdom that was going to happen right now, and it, like the world was going to end and there was a new reign now. But Jesus taught a kingdom that was here and not yet. He's talking about one day there's going to be this reign, like you were talking, but there's another way it's going to reign now. And in this kingdom that I'm going to reign now, you're not going to be first. So if we're fighting to be first, that means we don't understand his kingdom now. So it exposes this distortion of kingdoms of, of his reign. Okay? It was about his reign, not ours. Therefore, it's his kingdom, not our kingdom. All right? But they did not see how much they still hung on to that. And I think that is our problem many times. What are the things... That we think we've given him reign over that we still hold on to. Kingdom now, not just not yet. Mark 9, 1. 
says, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. So they were expecting in their lifetime to see it like they wanted it. But what really they were seeing the kingdom ushered in was at the cross and his resurrection that this was happening. It reveals a distorted view of his kingdom. Matthew Henry wrote, nothing could be more contrary to the two great laws of Christ's kingdom, lessons of his school and instructions of his example, which are humility and love than desiring preferment in the world and disputing about it. Second thing is it reveals a corruption of his gospel. And we struggle with this too. We think about a gospel that saves, hold on till Jesus comes back. But the gospel Jesus taught was a gospel that saved and a gospel then that transforms and then a gospel that restores and renews. That there's more to it than many times we think. So last thing is that Jesus introduces a paradox. He actually gives us the solution to our problem. He's very clear. He's very simple. First one is that the first will be last, right? Says it very clearly. The first will be last. Why? Two really big reasons. There's probably many little reasons, but give me a reason. Why will the first be last? Why is that a solution to a problem? Anybody? It's a little trickier, but... Why would the first be last? So what it's going to be, that's going to be the application of it, yes. Because we're, we're teaching humility. In the same line, what are we exposing about our perspective about ourselves? When we learn humility, what will we realize? That we're not first. See, we think we're first and we're not. There's the lie that we're believing. I think this is why Jesus tells us to go face to face with homeless guys. Because you get to hear their name and their story, look them in the eye, and you realize that's me. I think the first will be last one because in the end we're going to realize we were last anyways. And then Jesus made himself last to give us life. And we're going to be like him. We've got to learn that way of living. I think the why number two there, the first will be last, is this idea of the child that he brings in. Really the weakest representation of human beings. This sets up the second thought, this paradox. The first will be last, second is the least must be served like the greatest. I think this is both prophecy and instruction. Jesus was treated as the least, but he was yet the greatest. And then instruction is description and a prescription. It's how we're to live. In order to see this kingdom happen. So this paradox. This paradox to what? This paradox, you know, you expect it to go one way and it goes the exact opposite. That kind of way. You know, that's what a paradox is. The paradox is what? The paradox is our way of doing things. It's different than how we would normally do things. That is the big paradox. Last week we talked about... Jesus did this whole storyline, this whole thing, and all this teaching to pull everybody out just to tell them this kind can only come out by prayer. And that prayer is an exchange of will, an exchange of wishes. This kind can only come out in this way. I think our biggest thing that might be our this kind might be how we view ourselves at times. Um, It might be that we fail to see the obvious. It might be that we're missing the things. We hit the things like crazy that we see, but we fail to search for the things we don't see. 
and our own journey. I think this exchange is the lack of our desire, our dependency, and trusting. We don't realize that we depend and we trust only ourselves too much instead of exchanging it for him. And we we do all the other things of Christianity, but we just won't really trust. And we just don't really depend on him. And we just won't really relate it because all we can trust is ourself. I think this is the kind that will never come out of us until we exchange. Maybe what you and I are missing today is the exchange. Maybe the obvious is the exchange itself. And we'll never conquer that fill in the blank. We'll never experience power like we hope for in fill in the blank. Because we're still holding on. And maybe we're just like the disciples. And we're afraid to ask why. Well, maybe because we're selfish. Because maybe we're afraid of the answer. Because maybe we're afraid of change. Because maybe we're afraid of the truth. I don't know. I think that's our question and our task. What is it for you? Let's pray. Father, help us to see what we can't see. And we just studied last week a father whose son was dying right in front of his eyes. And and he told Jesus, I believe, help me with my unbelief. And God, we know that idea of unbelief means to, or that idea of belief means to entrust. Help us to entrust. Help us to see where we do not entrust, where we don't trust you. Jesus, you were so clear in the scripture we've studied in the past weeks that our job is to unlock things for the kingdom. Help us to see where we're still binding, where we're still holding on, and we're trusting ourselves over trusting you. Help us to learn how to do that exchange. God, may we do that. Maybe just the posture of our hearts. Maybe just, first of all, the desire and saying, God, I don't do that. Maybe that's step one. God, maybe the prayer that, that God teach us to do that is step two. God, change our hearts and change our minds about these things. To your glory. Amen. So we're going we're gonna to close our time as we do every week, communion and um, a, a couple of songs of worship. We want to just reflect on this scripture. Please don't lose this moment to ask the question, uh, what is it that's so obvious that we're missing and we're afraid to ask? We can't learn what we, don't, what we think we already know. What is it, Jesus?